1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Uh, Today on the program, we're going to talk with Sean McDowell. More accurately, Dr. Sean McDowell. He, along with his father have uh, reissued a new and improved version of evidence that demands a verdict the book is published by Zondervan we'll tell you more about it some of you remember when it was originally released others of you might be hearing about it for the first time this is uh the first new edition in almost 20 years the book was published initially 40 years ago uh, but it still um it provides answers that we so desperately need i love what they uh what they say um let me find that line I might not be able to find a right at this moment, but um, something about the questions are the same. The people are different, but we'll talk with him about that. Uh, he'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. So looking forward to talking with Dr. Sean McDowell about the book that he and his father have uh, re-released. His father, of course, being Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, updated and renewed. Republicans uh, attempt this week to repeal and replace Obamacare in the Senate is supposed to be their last shot, at least under current Senate rules. Now, the reason they want to do this under reconciliation is the fact that they don't need the Democrats to do it. If they fail to do it under that configuration, it's essentially dead, at least for the short term. Uh, the effort looks bleak right now. The Senate uh, is careening toward the September 30th deadline to try to uh, uh, to. Uh, Get out of uh, the 2010 health care law that was passed by the Democrats at the time with no Republican support. They want to replace it or at least modify it under this current plan, which uh, some suggest is this first step in the right direction. Others, oh, you know, like. um, John McCain might argue this isn't the right thing to do under reconciliation. In any event, that was the, uh, the that is rather the focus of this week. Uh, they uh, restored that um, the blueprint over the weekend to try to bolster uh, funding for Alaska and Maine to court the uh, the states' uh, respective GOP senators who hadn't expressed their support and did express some reluctance. That's Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, uh, who each have expressed skepticism about the bill, uh, but aren't um, hard uh, noses yet. Well, that may have hardened. Earlier today, we'll tell you more about that in a moment. The legislation largely sends health care uh, dollars to states in the form of block grants, and that would prevent the states to use the money as they see fit. Uh, some states would receive more, others less under this plan as uh, Obamacare. But uh, Republicans are arguing that they were weighted too heavily under uh, Obamacare, and this would uh, level the playing field based on the, uh, the actual uh, numbers in those respective dates. Well, it's, um, it's doubtful. That the Senate will, uh, uh this week have a, uh, complete analysis of the legislation from the Congressional Budget Office, although, uh, there are some preliminary numbers that have influenced at least, uh, one of the holdouts in this, uh, this back and forth. We're talking about the Graham Cassidy, uh, health care plan. There's still the version of health, uh, health reform. Uh, that Bernie Sanders is introduced. Of course, he's a, re- a Democrat. He's in the minority. Not even all the Democrats support it, but uh, there's no chance of it passing. But he has introduced legislation that would result in Medicare for all or Medicaid for all. I'm not sure which. But anyway, health care for everyone. It would be a single payer system. Well, Republican authors behind this last ditch effort, effort on that side of the aisle have struggled to win over Senate holdouts uh, and Uh, They've sweetened the pot just a bit. In this latest uh, setback, a spokesperson for Senator Rand Paul, whom President Trump tried to woo over the weekend, said that the Kentucky lawmaker has not budged from his opposition and does not intend to vote in favor of it. His state was uh, among those seeing a funding increase under the latest version of Graham-Cassidy. But the Republican has uh, concerns the plan would spend too much without really replacing Obamacare. No change on this. his position, his spokesman uh, says well, sponsors Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. They're trying to win over support from the uh, chamber's GOP holdouts. A new chart released by Cassidy's office. Uh, shows a range of of states getting extra health care funding, including those represented by each of those GOP handouts. 4% more for Kentucky, 49% more for Texas, 3% more for Alaska, 43% more for Maine, 14% for Arizona than under the current law. Senator John McCain, he uh, joined Rand Paul last Friday in opposing the bill, setting off a scramble uh to um, uh either win over Paul or at least convince other wavering senators to support the bill. Republicans can only afford to lose two senators on the floor. And of course, you have the vice president who would be a tiebreaker in the event that was the case. Well, we learned just a few moments ago that Senator Susan Collins announced this afternoon that she will oppose the GOP's latest plan to overhaul the Affordable Care Act, bringing the total number of uh, uh, of, uh Public no votes to three, likely killing the last ditch effort to repeal Obamacare this week. So despite these seven years of complaining, uh, repealing uh, without the president's signature, the Republicans have been unable to repeal, replace or even modify Obamacare. In a statement, the Republican from Maine said the bill does not go far enough to protect existing conditions and that the proposals cuts to Medicaid are too steep. Sweeping reforms to our health care system and to Medicaid can't be done well in a compressed time frame, especially when the actual bill is a moving target. She went on to say the bill would also open the door for states to weaken protections for people with pre existing conditions such as asthma, cancer, heart disease, arthritis and diabetes. End quote. Well, the decision, while widely expected, deals. So, what is almost certain to be a lethal blow to Senate Major Leader McConnell's 11th hour attempt to find 50 yes votes in his caucus. Susan Collins joins Senators John McCain of Arizona, Rand Paul of Kentucky, who have both said they will oppose the legislation. Senator Ted Cruz also said he opposed the legislation uh, as written. Susan Collins was one of three Republican senators to vote against the Obamacare repeal bill in July, along with McCain, Lisa Murkowski, uh, stopping the bill's passage on the Senate floor. Her decision to once again uh, buck her own party comes the day after Republican leaders released a revised version, as i mentioned mentioned. mentioned, uh, written by Senators uh, Graham and Cassidy to try to sweeten the pot. Collins had foreshadowed her announcement on CNN's State of the Union on uh, Sunday, saying that she had a very difficult time envisioning a scenario in which she would support the Graham-Cassidy health care bill, but she was not definitive. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast,
1: as aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Okay, we're back. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James is just shaking his head. Every once in a while, let me just explain. You're wearing a set of headphones, and it has a long cord that goes from the headphones. It drags on the ground, coils a couple of times, and then it comes back up to the table and plugs into what makes me, uh, uh, what allows me to hear from my headphones what's coming through the mics, through the commercials and all of that. Well, every once in a while, if you roll the wheel over it, it kind of gets tangled up, and I was trying to untangle it and James was sort of making out like I was an imbecile for taking so long to try to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, uh, the president's new travel order was announced uh, this weekend. The Supreme court in view of that has uh, canceled arguments that were set for October the 10th and the dispute over the president's uh, travel ban after he uh, rolled out this new uh, policy. well, The unsigned order from the Justice Department on Monday asks uh, both uh, of the uh, sides to weigh to weigh in on the 5th of October or by the 5th of October uh, about what to do in the case, whether or not it's a moot point or whether or not it should proceed. And the court, of course, ultimately will decide Uh, they've been ready to hear arguments about the legality of this 90 day ban on travelers from six uh, countries and a 120 day ban on refugees from around the world. Uh, The ban expired on Sunday, was replaced by a new policy that affects eight countries and has no expiration date. Um, These countries, as I mentioned, are Chad, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela and Yemen. A couple of those were not on the original ban. Um, Chad, North Korea and Venezuela were not covered under that earlier ban. So the court will have to decide if uh, moving forward on the now expired um, second iteration of the president's uh, travel ban, Uh, temporary travel ban merits a hearing or if this new one um, merits uh, some kind of review. So we'll keep you posted on that. Also, I just wanted to mention in view of uh, the the tragedies that we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks that puerto rico really remains in the dark damage assessments are beginning and things are very bad there the lights were back on at a couple major hospitals apparently they were able to generate something there but most of puerto rico is still in the dark and likely will remain without power for days weeks even months in some areas as you'll recall hurricane um, maria smashed a power grid That would be considered antiquated on the U.S. mainland, but generators are providing power to the few uh, who have them. But nearly all the islands, 1.6 million electricity companies were still without power as of this afternoon. A long delay in getting power restored will mean uh, even more uh, pain for the Puerto Rican economy that's already um, reeling from a, a decades long recession and a significant debt every day without power inflicts uh, more damage on the tourism industry, which they rely heavily upon. The lack of electricity could drive even more people to leave the island to find better opportunities on the mainland. Keep um, Puerto Rico in your prayers. It's it's so interesting to me. What was it three weeks ago? Houston was all that anyone was talking about. Then it was replaced days later by Florida and rightly so. We're focusing on these events as they're unfolding. What's happening in Houston is still a major uh, effort to try to get out from under. We, we mentioned last week, just the garbage alone, hauling the stuff that's been destroyed from in front of uh, homes to the landfill is a major undertaking. And then, of course, in Florida, they got uh, problems of their own. Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, um, the Caribbean Islands, and so on. So remember them in your prayer. And if you have the opportunity to give generously to organizations you trust who are ministering on the ground I would encourage you to, uh, to do just that. Well, President Donald Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner has uh, used a private email account to conduct and discuss official White House business dozens of times, according to his lawyer, who confirmed the same on Sunday. Well, Kushner used the private account through his first nine months in government service, even as the president continued to criticize his opponent in the 2016 presidential election, uh, Democrat Hillary Clinton, for her use of a private email account for government business. Well, Kushner several times used his account to exchange uh, news stories and minor reactions or updates with other administration officials. So it wasn't classified information, but nonetheless, a private uh, email account. Kushner and his wife, Ivanka Trump, set up the private account before Donald Trump moved into the White House, and Kushner was named a senior advisor to the president in January. Once in the White House, he used his private account for convenience from time to time, especially when he was traveling or using a personal laptop, according to two people familiar with his practice. A person who has uh, reviewed the email said... Many were um, quickly forwarded to his government account, and none appeared to contain classified information. Clinton offered a similar explanation in 2015 when it was revealed that she set up a private email account, in fact, a private server, as her exclusive means of email communication when she was Secretary of State. She also said she opted for private email as a matter of convenience. She insisted that she never shared classified information on her private account. Proved untrue or tried to sidestep the federal law that requires that official government communications are preserved. Apparently also not true. She said nearly all of her communication was stored by the government because she was communicating with other officials on her government accounts. Kushner used a private uh, rather use of private uh, account uh, was first reported Sunday by Politico. Trump repeatedly blasted Clinton in 2016. We'll see what comes of his advisor and son-in-law in 2017. Well, the big elephant in the room, of course, is the NFL and the debacle that took place over the weekend, beginning with the president jumping into the NFL anthem fray, the kneeling debate in a rather inartful and sometimes uh, uh, profane way with uh, the tweet. If NFL fans refuse to go to games until players stop disrespecting our flag and country, you will see change take place fast, fire or suspend. Well, it was much more detailed than that. And his um, audible statements were much more colorful than that. Uh, the reaction was extreme and, um, rather. Uh, profound and profane itself. Uh, Even overseas, the NFL players took to the knee. They stood for the British anthem, but not for the U.S. national anthem. The Pittsburgh Steelers, they decided to stay in the locker room during the anthem to try to remain neutral. However, one player, a former Army Ranger, stood alone. He told his teammates he just wanted to go out and at least see the flag. He hadn't intended to make himself a spectacle. In fact, he had gone out too far, further than he intended, uh, so that he would be seen, Uh, put his hand on his heart, and now is a celebrity on the side of those who believe it is disrespectful what the players are doing. Other teams did the same. Reports of uh, booing as the teams entered the field after the anthem could be heard. Steelers coach Mike Tomlin didn't uh, like his uh, player Villanova, uh, someone that was little known by most of the fans, breaking from the team. But again, he had intended just to see the flag. He wasn't trying to make a personal statement and has since expressed some regret that he had gone out far enough that others would have seen him. He, a, a veteran, Uh, who served twice, I believe, in theater of war, um, uh, had just wanted to go out as a matter of personal respect, but wanted to maintain his solidarity with the team. By the way, his jersey is selling quite well. Uh, One Gold Star mom, in response to all of this, took offense. She said, and I quote, when I read that he uh, said he couldn't stand for the flag, and I'm not sure which player in particular she's referring to, but when I read that he said he couldn't stand for the flag, that he didn't have pride in right away, my heart kind of stopped and I lost my breath. Because the flag that I see is the flag that draped my son's casket in honor. And I see the flag that was handed to my husband and I with deep respect from a grateful nation. When I look at the flag, I see the best, uh, the best of us. Um, she uh, spoke to CNN from the Wall Street Journal. They write Americans don't begrudge athletes. Their free speech rights see the popularity of Charles Barkley. But disrespecting the national anthem puts partisanship above a symbol of nationhood that thousands have died for. Players who choose to kneel shouldn't be surprised that fans around the country booed them on Sunday. This is the patriotic sentiment that they are helping Mr. Trump exploit for what he no doubt thinks is his own political advantage. Again, a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Town Hall points out in another story that CBS Sports reported on a poll where 72 percent found Kaepernick's antics to be unpatriotic and NASCAR is handling things quite differently. But when the 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 president complimented them for that difference. They made it clear that they support the rights of individuals to express their uh, their views on political subjects, as uh, some athletes have done. Well, some suggest this is the NFL's worst fumble yet. I suppose it depends on where you stand on the issue. Well, the NFL teams uh, stayed in their locker room, uh, several of them, in fact, three during the national anthem ahead of the NFL game on Sunday. As a growing number of players from other teams joined a protest by kneeling on the field as the national anthem rang out. Uh, at the uh, field in Nashville, neither the Tennessee Titans nor the Seattle Seahawks were out on the field. Earlier in the day, Chicago, all but one of the Pittsburgh Steelers, remained in the locker room during the anthem ahead of uh, the game against the uh, Bears. Uh, in all, more than 100 NFL players from several teams across the country knelt or uh, locked arms on Sunday after President Trump lashed out at the protesters. Uh, and uh, called for those who disrespect the flag to be fired or suspended. Uh, One Steeler was uh, seen just outside, as I mentioned. uh, He had not intended to make a spectacle of himself, and those are the words he has used of his own um, uh, decision, but rather just wanted to respect the flag as an individual, but still maintain solidarity with uh, his team. Well, the uh, back and forth has continued, and Sunday night football ratings have been down again as the players continue in their protest. According to Deadline Hollywood, metered market numbers, the primetime matchup that was saw the Washington Redskins beat the Oakland Raiders 27 to 10 snared a 11.6-20, the worst it, uh, Sunday night football has performed uh, this season so far. It's an 8% dip from the early numbers of last week's game, Atlanta's 34-23 win over Green Bay. And that's uh, that seems to be uh, the trend that we're seeing in view of these and other similar protests. Now, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the politicization of everything. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Okay, we're back. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James is just shaking his head. Every once in a while, let me just explain. You're wearing a set of headphones, and it has a long cord that goes from the headphones, it drags on the ground, coils a couple of times, and then it comes back up to the table and plugs into what makes me, uh, uh, what allows me to hear from my headphones what's coming through the mics the commercials and all of that. Well, every once in a while, if you roll the wheel over it, it kind of gets tangled up. And I was trying to untangle it. And James was sort of making out like I was an imbecile for taking so long to try to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, uh, the president's new travel order was announced uh, this weekend. The Supreme Court, in view of that, has uh, canceled arguments that were set for October the 10th And the dispute over the president's uh, travel ban after he uh, rolled out this new uh, policy. Well, the unsigned order from the Justice Department on Monday asks uh, both uh, of the uh, sides to weigh to weigh in on the 5th of October or by the 5th of October. Uh, about what to do in the case, whether or not it's a moot point or whether or not it should proceed. And the court, of course, ultimately will decide. Uh, they've been ready to hear arguments about the legality of this 90-day ban on travelers from six uh, countries and a 120-day ban on refugees from around the world. Uh, the ban expired on Sunday, was replaced by a new policy that affects eight countries and has no expiration date, Um, These countries, as I mentioned, are Chad, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. A couple of those were not on the original ban. Um, Chad, North Korea, and Venezuela were not covered under that earlier ban. So the court will have to decide if uh, moving forward on the now expired um, second iteration of the president's uh, travel ban, uh, temporary travel ban, merits a hearing, or if this new one... um, merits uh, some kind of review, so we'll keep you posted on that. Also, I just wanted to mention, in view of uh, the... the tragedies that we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks that puerto rico really remains in the dark damage assessments are beginning and things are very bad there the lights were back on at a couple major hospitals apparently they were able to generate something there but most of puerto rico is still in the dark and likely will remain without power for days weeks even months in some areas as you'll recall hurricane um, maria smashed a power grid That would be considered antiquated on the U.S. mainland, but generators are providing power to the few uh, who have them. But nearly all the islands, 1.6 million electricity companies were still without power as of this afternoon. A long delay in getting power restored will mean uh, even more uh, pain for the Puerto Rican economy that's already um, reeling from a, a decades long recession and a significant debt every day without power inflicts uh, more damage on the tourism industry, which they rely heavily upon. The lack of electricity could drive even more people to leave the island to find better opportunities on the mainland. Keep um, Puerto Rico in your prayers. It's it's so interesting to me. What was it three weeks ago? Houston was all that anyone was talking about. Then it was replaced days later by Florida and rightly so. We're focusing on these events as they're unfolding. What's happening in Houston is still a major uh, effort to try to get out from under. We we mentioned last week just the garbage alone, hauling the stuff that's been destroyed from in front of uh, homes to the landfill is a major undertaking. And then, of course, in Florida, they got uh, problems of their own, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, um, the Caribbean Islands and so on. So remember them in your prayer. And if you have the opportunity to give generously to organizations you trust who are ministering on the ground I would encourage you to uh, to do just that. Well, President Donald Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner has uh, used a private email account to conduct and discuss official White House business dozens of times, according to his lawyer, who confirmed the same on Sunday. Well, Kushner used the private account through his first nine months in government service, even as the president continued to criticize his opponent in the 2016 presidential election, uh, Democrat Hillary Clinton, for her use of a private email account for government business. Well, Kushner several times, Used his account to exchange uh, news stories and minor reactions or updates with other administration officials. So it wasn't classified information, but nonetheless a private uh, email account. Kushner and his wife Ivanka Trump set up the private account before Donald Trump moved into the White House, and Kushner was named a senior advisor to the president in January. Once in the White House, he used his private account for convenience from time to time, especially when he was traveling or using a personal laptop, according to two people familiar with his practice. A the person who has uh, reviewed the emails said many are were um, quickly forwarded to his government account and none appeared to contain classified information. Clinton offered a similar explanation in 2015 when it was revealed that she set up a private email account, in fact, a private server, as her exclusive means of email communication when she was secretary of state. She also said she opted for private email as a matter of convenience. She insisted that she never shared classified information on her private account proved untrue, or tried to sidestep the federal law that requires that official government communications are preserved, apparently also not true. She said nearly all of her communication was stored by the government because she was communicating with other officials on her government accounts. Kushner used a private, uh, rather, use of private uh, account, uh, was first reported Sunday by Politico. Trump repeatedly blasted Clinton in 2016. We'll see what comes of his advisor and son-in-law in 2017. Well, the big elephant in the room, of course, is the NFL and the debacle that took place over the weekend, beginning with the president jumping into the NFL anthem fray, the kneeling debate, in a rather inartful and sometimes uh, uh, profane way. With uh, the tweet, if NFL fans refuse to go to games until players stop disrespecting our flag and country, you will see change take place fast, fire or suspend. Well, it was much more detailed than that, and his um audible statements were much more colorful than that uh the reaction was extreme and um rather uh, profound and profane itself uh, even overseas the NFL players took to the knee they stood for the British anthem but not for the U.S. national anthem the Pittsburgh Steelers they decided to stay in the locker room during the anthem to try to remain neutral however one player a former army rangers stood alone he had told his teammates he just wanted to go out and at least see the flag he hadn't intended to make himself a spectacle in fact he'd gone out too far further than he intended Uh, so that he would be seen, uh, put his hand on his heart, and now is a celebrity on the side of those who believe it is disrespectful what the players are doing. Other teams did the same. Reports of uh, booing as the teams entered the field after the anthem could be heard. Steelers coach Mike Tomlin didn't uh, like his uh, player Villanova, uh, someone that was little known by most of the fans, breaking from the team, but again, he had intended just to see the flag. He wasn't trying to make A personal statement and has since expressed some regret that he had gone out far enough that others would have seen him. He, a a veteran uh, who served twice, I believe, in theater of war, um, had just wanted to go out as a matter of personal respect, but wanted to maintain his solidarity with the team. By the way, his jersey is selling quite well. Uh, One Gold Star mom, in response to all of this, took offense. She said, and I quote, when I read that he uh, said he couldn't stand for the flag, and I'm not sure which player in particular she's referring to, but when I read that he said he couldn't stand for the flag, that he didn't have pride in right away, my heart kind of stopped and I lost my breath. Because the flag that I see is the flag that draped my son's casket in honor. And I see the flag that was handed to my husband and I with deep respect from a grateful nation. When I look at the flag, I see the best, uh, the best of us. Um, she uh, spoke to CNN from the Wall Street Journal. They write Americans don't begrudge athletes. Their free speech rights see the popularity of Charles Barkley. But disrespecting the national anthem puts partisanship above a symbol of nationhood that thousands have died for. Players who choose to kneel shouldn't be surprised that fans around the country booed them on Sunday. This is the patriotic sentiment that they are helping Mr. Trump exploit for what he no doubt thinks is his own political advantage. Again, a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Town Hall points out in another story that CBS Sports reported on a poll where 72 percent found Kaepernick's antics to be unpatriotic and NASCAR is handling things quite differently. But when the The president complimented them for that difference. They made it clear that they support the rights of individuals to express their uh, their views on political subjects, as uh, some athletes have done. Well, some suggest this is the NFL's worst fumble yet. I suppose it depends on where you stand on the issue. Well, the NFL teams uh, stayed in their locker room, uh, several of them, in fact, three during the National Anthem ahead of the NFL game on Sunday. As a growing number of players from other teams joined a protest by kneeling on the field as the National Anthem rang out. Uh, At the uh, field in Nashville, neither the Tennessee Titans nor the Seattle Seahawks were out on the field. Earlier in the day, Chicago, all but one of the Pittsburgh Steelers, remained in the locker room during the anthem ahead of uh, the game against the uh, Bears. Uh, In all, more than 100 NFL players from several teams across the country knelt or uh, locked arms on Sunday after President Trump lashed out at the protesters. Uh, and uh, called for those who disrespect the flag to be fired or suspended. Uh, One Steeler was uh, seen just outside, as I mentioned. Uh, He had not intended to make a spectacle of himself, and those are the words he has used of his own um, uh, decision, but rather just wanted to respect the flag as an individual, but still maintain solidarity with uh, his team. Well, the uh, back and forth has continued, and Sunday night football ratings have been down again as the players continue in their protest. According to Deadline Hollywood, metered market numbers, the primetime matchup that was saw the Washington Redskins beat the Oakland Raiders 27 to 10, snared a 11.6-20, the worst Sunday night football has performed uh, this season so far, it's an eight percent dip from the early numbers of last week's game. Atlanta's thirty-four twenty-three win over Green Bay, and that's uh, that seems to be uh, the trend that we're seeing in view of these and other similar protests. Now we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the politicization of everything. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Sean McDowell. Yes, he's the son of the other McDowell, Josh, and they have reissued the uh, the updated version of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the first in 20 years. The book, of course, uh, published 40 years ago, and uh, it sold over a million copies. Well, as I mentioned, the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal pointed out that the politicization of everything – Uh, results in everybody losing in the Trump-NFL brawl over the national anthem. They write, healthy democracies have ample room for politics, but leave a larger space for civil society and culture that unites under uh, more than divides. With the politicization of the National Football League and the national anthem, the divided states of America are exhibiting a very unhealthy level of polarization and mistrust. Of course, this is just one example of many that we might cite of, of recent. Uh, the progressive forces of identity politics started this uh, poisonous poisoning, rather, of America's favorite spectator sport last year by making a hero of Colin Kaepernick for refusing to stand for the national ba- the Star Spangled Banner before games. They raised the stakes this year by turning him into a progressive martyr because no team has picked him up to play quarterback after he opted out of his contract with the San Francisco 49 Nineers. The NFL is a meritocracy, and maybe coaches and general managers thought he wasn't good enough for the divisions he might. Uh, cause in a locker room and among fans. But the left said it was about race and class. Now, keep in mind, he was the same player that wore the socks during one of the game that had police officers dressed as pigs. Now, you might oppose those uh, police officers who have uh, acted... Um, uh, Outside the law, but to characterize all police officers as pigs cross the line for many. All of this, the Wall Street Journal continues, is cultural catnip for Donald Trump, who pounced on Friday night at a rally and on the weekend on Twitter with his familiar combination of gut and political instinct, rhetorical excess and ignorance. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get an expletive off the field right now? Uh, get out. you uh, He's fired. He's fired. Mr. Trump said on Friday. And of course, that's modified because I don't use the language he chose to use as the commander-in-chief. No doubt most Americans agree with Mr. Trump that they don't want their flag disrespected, especially by millionaire athletes, but Mr. Trump never stops at reasonable, and so he called for kneeling players to be fired or suspended, and if the league didn't comply, for fans to boycott the NFL. He also plunged into the debate over um, head injuries without a speck of knowledge about the latest brain science, claiming that the NFL was ruining the game by trying to stop dangerous physical hits. This is the kind of rant you'd hear uh, in a sports bar, without much um, much intelligence behind it, Mr. Trump has managed to unite the players and owners against him. Though several owners supported him for president uh, and uh, donated to his inaugural, the owners were almost obliged to defend the uh, their sport, even if. Their uh, complaints that Mr. Trump was divisive ignored the divisive acts by Mr. Kaepernick and his media allies that injected politics into football in the first place. Now, this certainly wouldn't be the first time politics was injected in the game. You remember the early days of baseball, football, when, for example, individuals based on their skin color were simply not allowed to participate at all. So this is not a new development. It's just the most recent. The Wall Street Journal goes on. Americans don't begrudge athletes their free speech rights. See the popularity of Charles Barkley. But disrespecting the national anthem puts partisanship above a symbol of nationhood that thousands have died for. Players who choose to kneel shouldn't be surprised that fans around the country booed them on Sunday. This is the patriotic sentiment that they are helping Mr. Trump exploit for what he no doubt thinks is his own political advantage. American democracy was healthier when politics at the ballpark was limited to fans booing politicians who threw out the first ball, almost as a part as a bipartisan obligation. This showed a healthy skepticism toward the political class. But now now the players want to be politicians and use their fame to lecture other Americans. The Parsons of the press uh, corps want to make them moral spokesmen and the president wants to run against the players. The losers are the millions of Americans who would rather cheer for their team on Sunday as a respite from work in the other divisions of American life. Uh, and again, this is uh, from the Wall Street, um, the Wall Street Journal. And again, the numbers are are down dramatically. Kaepernick was perhaps uh, the first, but certainly now the issue has broadened from what, uh, for him, began as Black Lives Matters and an effort to draw attention to violence against African Americans by police. Uh, the protest this last Sunday was more of a statement against the president, and, and has little to do, perhaps, with the initial. A uh, subject that uh, that raised the the question. Uh, anyway, Larry, I uh, should say Arnold uh, Allert also raised the question about politicizing entertainment and the fact that Americans are tuning out. What on earth has happened to late night comedy? That's what one columnist, Larry O'Connor, asked. The question is rhetorical. O'Connor knows what happened to late-night comedy, along with the rest of TV entertainment, movies, sports shows, and sports themselves. They become bully pulpits for the dissemination of progressive ideology. In short, a cadre of sanctimonious and tolerant pseudo-moralists who determine to make every American as miserable as they are. Thankfully, their nonstop moralizing comes with a price. Take last week's Emmy Awards where host and late-night comic Stephen Colbert and his merry band of fabulously wealthy and thoroughly out-of-touch fellow celebrities couldn't resist bashing President Trump when they weren't busy lecturing their audience about the proper way to think about topics such as global warming. Middle East turmoil, racism, as uh, a hot air's Jazz Shaw puts it, telling the same five jokes about conservatives ad nauseam. Apparently millions of Americans were afflicted with nausea, the telecast um, uh, tied last year's show for the all-time smallest audience ever. Shaw nonetheless insists everything is relative and that an audience of 11.4 million isn't uh, about uh, to give the left pause because it's still a big number relative to the ratings of other TV broadcasts, and they can pay all the bills with that just fine. Well, maybe so for now, but ratings ultimately determine what uh, what rates advertisers will pay to get their pro uh, their products before the American public. And while TV ratings are down a whopping thirty three percent in the last four years, ad rates were up twenty percent because the networks managed to convince ad buyers the time buys were still worth it. Well, not anymore. TV ad sales are expected to slide this year, the first time that's happened since the height of the Great Recession, reports Business Insider, which also notes a bad economy can't be used as an excuse this time. And while it's only 1%, it may signal the beginning of a trend uh, exacerbated by the reality that the same Americans who... Uh, averaged 42 hours of TV watching per week in 2011 or averaging only 34 hours of TV watching per week uh, as of first quarter of 2017. Well, they go on from uh, from there. Mr. Um, Allert pointing out that uh, politicizing entertainment is not good business and people are simply tuning out. It's not just the NFL, but other um, outlets as well. Now, we're going to take a break here in about a minute. When we do, we're going to have news and traffic at the top of the hour. Uh, we'll share a little bit more of the news. And then at about 5.15, Sean McDowell is going to join us. He is the son of Josh McDowell, who is the original author of Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Well, it's been re-released, updated thoroughly, uh, and uh, that will be available on the, uh, let's see, the 1st or 2nd of October. We'll give you the specific date in just a few moments. But he's going to join us to talk about... Uh, the book evidence because there are generations who have perhaps have never heard of the title, but will uh, enjoy and appreciate the content of the book. So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour, fifty nine minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the
1: Georgine Rice Show podcast, as aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Sean McDowell. He, along with his father, Josh McDowell, have reissued a book that has been a classic for some 40 years. It's been 20 years since they've updated the evidence that demands a verdict. But that is precisely what they have now done. And we'll talk with him about that when he joins us in our next couple of segments. Well, one person was killed. Eight others wounded. This is Sunday after a masked man opened fire—fire uh, rather—following a church service in Antioch. Well, the shooter was identified as Emmanuel Kidega uh, Sampson, a 25-year-old Rutherford County man. Accidentally shot himself, apparently after he was confronted by an armed member of the congregation. He was treated at an area hospital, was released into police custody, according to the Metro Nashville Police. Well, Sampson will be charged with one count of murder. Additional charges will come. Uh, later, police said uh, he uh, uh, previously had attended the church, so his motives are, are not yet clear. The woman he killed had been identified as a 39-year-old mother who lived in Smirth, uh, Smyrna. Police say the gunman wore a neoprene ski mask when he shot and killed uh, the 39-year-old in the parking lot of the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ as the service ended shortly after 11 a.m., With his blue Nissan Xterra still running, the gunman then entered the uh, rear of the sanctuary doors of the church, began indiscriminately firing. Uh, Among those shot were three men, three women, police spokesman uh, Don Aaron said. The church's minister, 66-year-old Joey Spann and his wife, um, were both injured in the shooting. The Nashville Christian School uh, says in a statement uh, on uh, Facebook Um, Spam is a Bible teacher and a high school and middle school basketball coach. Churchgoer uh, Caleb Engel, who was uh, hailed by police as a hero, confronted the shooter while inside the church was violently uh, pistol whipped. Uh, He said during the uh, confrontation that Engel, um, the gunman, uh, shot himself in the the left of his uh, chest. Uh, Shortly after the shooting, the gunman was uh, transported to a local hospital. Uh, again, two of the victims were also hospitalized in critical condition, so we don't know what the status is for them. But this is just the latest in a series of e- events in which someone is entered into a church building during a worship service and opened fire on parishioners. It's, uh, it's the first among several recent for us here, but of course, this is what happens to people in churches all around the world with some regularity. The churches are burned, the people are harassed, they're imprisoned, they're deprived of opportunity, they're prevented from being able to uh, be employed and and so on. Uh, So these events, while they are heinous, um, it's not surprising that uh, followers of Christ are sometimes targeted in this way, uh, certainly unusual here, but certainly not around the world. In fact, last week we focused our attention on the persecuted church and uh, what many of them suffer as a consequence of simply saying, I will not denounce my faith. I am a follower of Christ. I will share the gospel as uh, as one who is grateful and takes the Great Commission seriously. And I want to thank those of you who participated in the campaign that will continue through this week uh, to provide Bibles to those who suffer for their faith uh, and do not have them. Open Doors, we partnered with them, and in fact, if you'd like to give to that cause, you can go to kpdq.com and look for the banner at the top of the page, and uh, you can still give a gift of uh, God's Word to those uh, who suffer. Meanwhile, freedom of uh, religion, uh, as protected by the First Amendment, uh, protected in this country, uh, in fact, uh, there are there has been a 15 percent jump in the number of discriminatory cases in 2017. In the addition of the First Liberty Report called um, Undeniable, it shows that the uh, threats to America's First Amendment rights span the uh, spanning rather the first five years. The number of documented incidents of religious discrimination grew 15 percent in 2016 compared to 2015. Uh, The number of incidents increased by 133% from 600 to more than 1,400 between 2011 and 2016, and this is uh, sadly a trend that will continue for some time. Uh, The research uh, team also collects reports from news outlets and other organizations, including the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is an atheist group, Um, the... uh, Uh, Mr. Butterfield, who was a law degree or rather has a law degree from Harvard, said researchers specifically looked for instances where someone was illegally restricted from or prosecuted for practicing his or her faith. Undeniable divides cases into four categories, attacks on religion in public areas and the workplace, in schools, in churches and ministries, and in the military. First Liberty, of course, is a nonprofit organization established back in 97. It focuses on identifying religious freedom, or rather defending religious freedom in court cases. It has participated and provided information in court cases Um, at all levels, including the Supreme Court. It also uh, publishes reports educating Americans about the relevance of the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment uh, is a a legal protection afforded to us by our country, but we know from the Bill of Rights that all of the rights that we enjoy uh, are not the product of the state, but these are endowed to us by our creator. And so even if um, those amendments were to be disregarded and the state were no longer to protect them. And there's some question as to whether or not that will be the case long term. Uh, we have been endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and religious liberty does not extend to us from the state, but by God himself. Well, a conservative legal organization went to court on Friday in Hawaii over a law that forces pregnancy centers uh, pregnancy resource centers to provide free advertising for abortion and we 've talked about these cases uh, before this one, but it 's now gone to um, the court in Hawaii. They are requiring pregnancy centers that just give away diapers and baby clothes to refer women to uh, the state to a, a website that connects them with uh, certainty um, uh, to abortion. Um, causing drugs and abortionists and so on. The senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom told the Daily Signal in a phone interview regarding the case. It's an important case because Hawaii goes even further than California did uh, and they are clearly signaling uh singling out pregnancy centers. Well the Hawaii law is similar to the law passed in twenty fifteen in California which required licensed medical centers Uh, that offer free pro-life help to pregnant women to post a disclosure saying that California provides free and low-cost abortion and contraceptive services, according to Christian Legal Group Alliance. The National Institutes of Family and Life Advocates and Calvary Chapel Pearl Harbor, a place for women pregnancy care center, filed a lawsuit back in July. Hawaii's law, Senate Bill 501, went into effect on the 11th of July. They're challenging uh, elements of that law, uh, which will have a significant impact um In other uh, areas as well. And finally, um, the iconic places burned in Oregon's wildfires um, uh, are, at least for now, being assessed. It's not uh, just that Oregon wildfires burned an area the size of Rhode Island this summer. Uh, That is certainly the case. Uh, The numbers are staggering. 1,903 fires, 1,060 square miles burned, $340 million spent so far on firefighting costs. Those numbers uh, fail to actually capture the real loss that we have uh, suffered here in Oregon. The flames tore into beloved places across the state, mountains and forests. Oregonians traditionally pilgrimage each summer and fall, including the Columbia River Gorge, Mount Jefferson, and the Three Sisters. Uh, fire teams are just now beginning to assess the damage and plan what comes next. In the coming weeks, they're going to survey the, uh, the burned areas and determine when it's safe enough to uh, return to those areas. Among them was the... Uh, wildfire, the Whitewater Fire, 11,500 acres. That's in the Mount Jefferson Wilderness Area, east of Detroit. It's expected to reopen sometime in the spring and summer of 2018. There, of course, is the Eagle Creek Fire that's uh, uh, kept much of uh, Columbia uh, Gorge Trails closed, and that will remain the case until 2018. Eagle Creek uh, Fire burned some 49,000 acres. The Columbia River Gorge east of Portland is where that's located. It's expected again to reopen sometime in the spring of 2018. The Chetco Bar Fire, uh, that burned 190,000 acres. Uh, That's in southwest Oregon between Brookings and Cave Junction. It's going to reopen. Some areas are open now. Others uh, won't be open until the spring of 2018. And, of course, that's when people would uh, most likely return. There's the Mill Fire, 24,000 acres in central Oregon near Sister's. Uh, that's uh, expected to reopen in the spring of 2018 for many trails and campgrounds, uh, but some trails are going to remain closed indefinitely. They tell us there was the um, the Blanket Creek Fire, 33,322 acres. The Spruce Lake Fire, rather, um, 15,826 acres. That's in the Crater Lake National Park. Crater Lake National Park is open, but some of the trails won't open until this spring. The Umpqua North Complex, 44,000 acres, that's in the Southern Cascade foothills east of Roseburg, that's expected to reopen. Uh, State Highways 138 has reopened already, but trails and rivers remain closed for the foreseeable future. And finally, there's the um, Horse Creek Complex fire, 33,000 acres in Central Cascade Mountains near McKenzie Bridge. That will, uh, McKenzie Pass Highway 242 is likely closed for the season. Other areas, it's not yet determined. I said finally, but uh, there's still the Fall Creek um, swimming holes, the Jones Fire, 10,000 acres, Cascade Foothills, uh, east of Eugene. That's uh, It's not known when that will reopen. It's also not known when the uh, Broken Lookout uh, area will reopen, 18,781 acres, uh, and the PUP uh, Fire, 7,524 acres. The Umpqua Divide Wilderness, west of Crater Lake, and the national park there, uh, areas affected by fire. And again, the assessments are just beginning. Seventeen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Sean McDowell. He's uh, re-released along with his father, Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, as aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ. Hey,
2: we're back. Twenty one minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Josh McDowell and his son, Dr. Sean McDowell, have collaborated on a completely updated and expanded edition of the modern apologetics classic Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Life Changing Truth. For a skeptical world. Well, evidence was first published with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ in 1972 to arm thoughtful Christ followers with knowledge to defend and proactively present the Christian faith. Well, since that initial uh, release of the book, more than one million copies of this classic apologetics resource have been sold. The truth of the Bible doesn't change. But the critics do. That's the phrase I was trying to remember earlier. That's just such a great way of putting where we stand today. The book addresses the latest challenges to the Christian faith with brand new research. And I am delighted that we're going to uh, talk with Uh, Dr. Sean McDowell about the project that he and his father have worked on together. Now, Dr. McDowell is a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church, especially young people, to make the case for the Christian faith. He connects with uh, audiences through humor and stories while imparting hard evidence and logical support of a biblical worldview. He is an assistant professor at Biola University Christian Apologetics Program and uh, the resident scholar for Summit California, a regular speaker for organizations like Focus on the Family, the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview and Youth Specialties, among others. Sean is the author, co-author or editor of over uh, 18 books and is a frequent guest on radio shows like Family Life Today and Points of View. Uh, you can uh, learn more about uh, him and we'll tell you more about that uh, in just a bit as well. But you can go to seanmcdowell.org. But today we're talking about the re-release of of a classic that he and his father, Josh McDowell, are uh, making available and will be released on October the 3rd. Dr. McDowell, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, Georgine, what a treat. Thanks for having me.
2: Now, unlike you, I was around 40 years ago when your father's classic was first released, <laughs> and I remember... Uh, how important it was at that time to help equip Christians to talk about their faith. I think all of us want to be able to do that, but we want to do it well. We want to think through uh, how to present the gospel in a way, the Christian faith in a way that's uh, that's compelling. Uh, and that classic really um, helped us to do that. Now, fast forward 40 years, and uh, here we are today with the second reissue of the book. It's uh, new and improved. Tell us a little bit about the update of Evidence That Demands a Verdict.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you asked it. The way you phrased it again was right, that truth doesn't change, but its critics do. Meaning that the truth of the resurrection, truth of the scriptures, truth that Jesus is God, those are true and the evidence is there. But the critiques and the objections and the questions being raised against it, especially because when it was first written in the early 70s, there was no such thing really as the Internet or smartphones those kind of objections were different. So in this one, we felt like we had to make sure we were addressing the biggest questions being raised on college campuses, on the Internet by critics today, but also respond to some of the objections that were raised against the last time evidence was updated in 1999. So it's still the classical evidence book, but it's well over 50 or 60 percent new content mm-hmm. just being updated to really where our culture is right now. Well,
2: and I love that because there are generations who were not here 40 years ago when this was first released who desperately need this kind of help in thinking through how do I communicate my faith in a way that is uh, honoring Christ and his word and at the same time relevant to the culture uh, and, and um you know, consistent with what the Holy Spirit would have me do. Now, you begin the introduction by interviewing your father. Tell us a little bit about that and and what kinds of questions uh, you would ask your dad as the two of you undertake to rewrite, to update, if you will, uh, this new edition of Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's
3: really humbling to be a part of this program, Georgine. Everywhere I go, somebody says one of two things. Either this book helped them hold on to their faith when they had questions when they were younger, typically in college, or it's a book that God used as a part of their journey to draw them to Christ. So when we did this together, I thought, you know what, how cool would it be with a father and son bringing evidence for a new generation? That I just ask him how, you know, I start off by doing an interview with him, asking some questions related to this update. And people can check it out. I ask him probably seven or eight questions. But Mm -hmm. one thing I ask him is, how did he assess the evidence today versus when he first released evidence in the early 70s? And I think the way he phrased it, he says, there was good evidence when I first wrote it, but now in some areas, he would actually say we have a tsunami of evidence. That's the phrase he uses. So, for example, when he first wrote it, of the manuscripts of, say, the Old and New Testament handwritten copies, he could document about 24,000. Now, because of just increased research and work, it's well over 60,000 So the amount of manuscripts we had gives us so much more confidence of reconstructing the original. Second, take resurrection studies. When he first wrote evidence, you pretty much couldn't find any scholars who accepted core truths around the resurrection historically who were not evangelical Christians. Now, Georgine, it's a majority of scholars who accept certain historical truths such as Jesus living, dying on the cross, being buried, having an empty tomb, and even appearing to people. And that's just because the arguments and the evidence that's been uncovered has been so favorable towards the Christian faith.
2: Well, I don't want to presume that all of our listeners understand what this evidence is set to prove. Evidence of what to make what point? Let's begin there.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. The book is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And because it's been so influential, people sometimes just call it evidence Mm -hmm. for shorthand. But really, my dad wrote it first as an agnostic, trying to disprove Christianity. He traveled around the world when you couldn't get this information on the internet or even your local library, and started gathering evidence to prove that Jesus is not God, the Bible's not true, and he didn't rise from the grave. Well, six, eight months, a year into this, he started to realize, oh my goodness, the archaeological evidence, the historical evidence, the textual evidence, even the philosophical evidence pointed the other direction than he thought. So he compiled this massive book of all of his findings, and no publisher wanted it. Ironically, publishers said people don't want just massive amounts of evidence, it's not going to sell. And then when he finally got a publisher, it absolutely went gangbusters. And he really realized, oh my goodness, people are hungry to know. Is there historical evidence? Is there good reason to believe that Christianity is true? So that's what we mean by the evidence. So what it shows is that faith is not blind, faith is not wishing, it's not opposed to evidence. Faith is trusting God, and the more evidence we have, I think the greater our trust can be.
2: Mm. In the sections of the book, you cover evidence for the Bible, evidence for Jesus, evidence for the Old Testament, and evidence for truth. These are core issues that a believer, um, in attempting to explain the Christian faith, uh, uh, would need to have some, some clear understanding of for themselves and uh, understanding of how to communicate well. Uh, do you find that evidence that demands a verdict is used more for believers who are reinforcing what they already believe? Or do you see it being used by those who want to share their faith effectively so that they're equipping themselves to share what they already embrace?
3: Well, my dad actually first wrote it for Christians. So he wrote a shorter book, more than a carpenter, as an evangelistic tool. Evidence was written first to just help Christians understand that Christianity is not fairy tale; it's not just blind wishing. It's actually true to build up their confidence, with the hopes that they would go out and share their faith. But amazingly, not only just Christians read it, but Georgine, I get emails and meet people personally from all over the world who were given a copy of it when they were a skeptic and ended up reading it and coming to faith. So, for example, here's an example. Just this week, met a lady who who shared through a friend of mine that said when she was all the way back in college, she had to write a paper. And so she used evidence to write a paper to in her faith with a teacher who's an atheist. And her teacher said, this was actually in high school, her teacher said, I'll give you a good grade, but you're totally wrong. You did good research, but you're mistaken. And then years later, she found out that that teacher had become a Christian, Mm. and her paper was one of the things that got her attention. So my dad first wrote it to try to get Christians to speak out and write papers and just take this information and engage the culture for their confidence, But God has used it to bring an awful lot of other people to the faith.
2: We're talking about evidence that demands a verdict. It has been fully updated and expanded. It addresses the latest challenges to the Christian faith with brand new research you're going to enjoy. it. And I know one of the things that uh, the pair of you have uh, done is you invite readers to bring their doubts, and you don't shy away from some of the tough questions.
3: Yeah, that's right. We we felt like if people were going to trust us and take us seriously, we have to be willing to uh, deal with the tough questions. So in the intro, we have... 10 big questions, objections that people have that often keep people from even considering whether or not Christianity is true. So, we thought before some people get to the evidence, let's make sure that they have some of their questions answered. So, we deal with questions like Are Christianity and science at war? The claim that Christians are intolerant, the claim that Christians are hypocrites. What about hell? What about isn't Christianity blind faith? So, we tackle these tough questions right up front and try to show that that there's no good reason not to consider the evidence, and then we lay it out and hope people will look at it. And the other thing we do, too, is we try really hard not to overstate the evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're trying to make a case that Christianity is true because we believe it, but we don't want people to read it and go, yeah, they're overstating it and lose credibility. We think people read it and go, gosh, that's compelling, that makes sense, but we've been judicious and fair with how we present it.
2: We're going to continue our conversation again. We're talking this afternoon with Sean McDowell. He's a PhD. He, along with his father, Josh McDowell, have presented uh, evidence that demands a verdict for the 21st century. We'll tell you more about that and continue our conversation in just a moment. By the way, if you'd like to pre order the book, you can go to ReadEvidence.com to pre order. ReadEvidence.com.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Sean McDowell. He is an assistant professor in Biola University's Christian Apologetics Program and the resident scholar for Summit California. He's also a regular speaker for organizations like Focus on the Family, the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview and Youth Specialties, among uh, other things. He, along with his father, Josh McDowell, have re-released, after thoroughly updating, evidence that demands a verdict, life-changing truth for a skeptical World. Uh, So delighted to see the book back on the shelves updated for the 21st century. As we mentioned, you deal with evidence for the Bible, evidence for Jesus, for the Old Testament, evidence for truth and so on, beginning with some uh, pretty tough answers to, to tough questions. Um, let's look at evidence for the Bible. I have some friends with whom I have attended church and have decided that, well, the Old Testament isn't reliable, I simply reject that, and they've picked and chosen which books of the Bible they're going to accept and which uh, they are not. Let's talk about two elements in that section on evidence for the Bible, the uniqueness of the Bible, and whether or not the Old Testament has been translated accurately. How can we know?
3: Yeah, so the uniqueness of the Bible is actually the very first chapter after the introduction of the book. And it's not meant to argue that the Bible's true. It's meant for people to realize how special and different and in a category of its own the Bible is. So we talk about, for example, it was written by 40 authors over 1,500 years in three languages on multiple continents, and yet there's a continuity of the core message. We talk about how it's been translated in more languages and been read by more people than any book throughout history. We talk about its impact on nations, on individuals, on the world more than any other book. So we just start off by helping people realize that if they just stop and compare it to any other book, the Bible is unmistakably in a category of its own, no question about it. That's to motivate people to consider its message and wonder if it's true. Then we walk through a liability Bible. When it comes to the Old Testament, really the key question is, has the Old Testament been transcribed from one generation to the next carefully. And there's so much involved in this, but one factor i like to point out is the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in the mid-1940s, is arguably the greatest discovery, archaeological discovery of the 20th century, if not all time. And what happened is, on a cave on the northern part of the Dead Sea, there are actually a bunch of caves, a complete copy of Isaiah was found. Now, it was probably from about 100 to 150 B.C. when it was written. Well, why is this important? Because before that time, the earliest copy we really had of Isaiah was from about 900 A.D. So in one find, we just covered a thousand years of the Bible, in particular the book of Isaiah, being copied. So of course, scholars are thinking, has it been changed? So how much? And Georgine, it's remarkable. I mean, the changes were minor details that only have to do with the change of language and a couple words here and there, or really even letters. It was essentially identical, because the scribes of the Old Testament went to unbelievable pains, copying Mm -hmm. letter by letter and counting the consonants on every line from generation to generation just to be sure we could have confidence that the Bible was passed from one generation to the next. With the utmost care.
2: Well, it is remarkable. And it's so healthy for us as followers of Christ to be reminded of the uniqueness of the Bible and what has been handed down to us and the care that's been taken. Uh, in the second part of the book, Evidence for Jesus, you deal with the trilemma. Either he's the Lord, a liar, or the lunatic. Uh, the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled uh, about Jesus, the lofty claims that he made, as well as the resurrection. Now, these have been called into question not just by those outside the church, but as you know, there are some within the church who have simply dismissed much of Jesus' ministry, uh, and uh, for those who want to, to examine what Jesus claimed, what he did, what the scriptures say, uh, this walks uh, readers through those, uh, those notions so that they can better understand, is there evidence to support uh, what Jesus himself, what the scriptures say?
3: Oh, my goodness, there's unbelievable evidence. It's hard for me to imagine why somebody, especially a Christian, would dismiss not only the words Jesus spoke, but even some of the evidence that it's true especially because we have good reason to believe it's true. That it doesn't mean we can answer every question, because we're dealing with events 2,000 years ago. So there are some questions that we have. But if you just take the biblical message and the words of Jesus, and you compare it to any other ancient document, in terms of the number of handwritten copies we have, how early they are, there's no comparison uh, when we look at other works of antiquity that nobody even questions. Mm-hmm. So I shared that with a skeptic one time, and I said, you know, if you're going to be honest, you're going to have to dismiss really all of what we think we know of ancient history. And he goes, okay, we can't know anything from ancient history. And I said, are you kidding me? If that's what it takes for you, and I'm not saying all skeptics do this, but if that's what it takes to dismiss the reliability of the New Testament, then my goodness, you're going to lengths to reject the message. Maybe something more is going on than it actually being reliable. Maybe it's the message that's offensive to some
2: people. Mm. Let's talk about the third part of the book, evidence for the Old Testament. I know for many believers, and this is perhaps more true now than in previous generations, the Old Testament is almost irrelevant. There are references, of course, made by the apostles, by Jesus himself to the Old Testament, but not much time or attention is given to it. Um, How important is it for us to understand the uh, evidence for the Old Testament and its relevance to the New
3: Well, we have to remember that, you know, Philip Yancey wrote a book a few years ago, and it was called The Bible Jesus Read. And what they meant is, during the time of the apostles and Jesus, the books of the Bible had not all been written and compiled. Their Bible was the Old Testament. And Jesus consistently, like in Matthew 19, when a question came up about marriage, is it permissible to have divorce? Jesus quotes Genesis 1, and he quotes Genesis 2, the Pharisees, and he says, have you not read? Meaning, this book, at that time written at least 1,500 years earlier, is not only important, but it's authoritative on how we make sense of issues, even today, like marriage. Let I mean, take the Old Testament, the historicity of the Exodus, which we have a whole chapter on, is considered really the central event of the Old Testament. And a lot of people, when it comes to the Old Testament, not only do you think it's irrelevant, but they're afraid to look at the evidence because they think, gosh, if we just look at what scholars say— It'll disprove our views. Well, we're dealing with events a long time ago, so some of the evidence has been lost and destroyed, and some it just is not preserved, so we have to look at it in a fair light. But we start with the historical Adam, go all the way through the Old Testament and lay out and show consistently that we have good reason to take these stories as true and historical. And last, I mean, what did Jesus say in Luke 24? He said, the Old Testament spoke of me. That means we can only fully understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament. So we need to recover the theology and story of the Old Testament, but also the confidence that it's really true, as we do in evidence.
2: Well, there's so much more that we could discuss and so much more in the book. Again, evidence that demands a verdict, life-changing truth for a skeptical world. You can pre-order the book at readevidence.com and I would encourage you to do that. It's a, a great book for new generations and for those of us who read the original, you might want to get the update to cover issues that have been raised and the evidence that has expanded dramatically uh, in recent years. Uh, Dr. McDowell, thank you so much for partnering with your father and for taking the time to talk with us about it here today.
3: Thanks for having me on. You're a pro, Georgine. Keep it up.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much. Again, evidence that demands a verdict. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. No, that's not true. We have our final segment up next. I'm used to doing the interview at 4.30 and then at 5.00. Okay, we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, as aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment, of the Georgine Rice Show. A little nostalgia in our last segment. Well, I wanted to bring you up to date on what's happening uh, with regard to Down syndrome children, not uh, abroad so much this time, but here in this country. Lawmakers in Ohio, they're considering legislation that would make aborting Down syndrome babies illegal. Now, as we've discussed here before, there are countries in which Down syndrome children are altogether gone because they are being aborted. Um, at 100% of the time, unless, of course, a mistake from their perspective is made and a child survives. The bill, if it's passed again in the state of Ohio, would uh, penalize doctors for performing abortions on pregnant women who receive a positive test that their baby will have Down syndrome. Now, the state wouldn't fine or punish the woman who aborts the baby after receiving that uh, positive test for the congenital, g- congenital disorder, rather. The doctor who performs the procedure, however, would be held responsible, could receive a fourth-degree felony charge if officials there could find the doctor and even prevent the physician from continuing to practice medicine, according to the Associated Press. Um, uh, the, uh, one Ohio nurse uh, told the Associated Press that doctors uh, tell you of these horrific things that can happen with a Down syndrome baby the different uh, anomalies, cardiac issues, and so on. I really feel like you've, uh, you're you given a death sentence. Well, Coons is a 38-year-old uh, nurse. She received a positive test for Down syndrome during her fourth pregnancy and now has a two-year-old son with Down syndrome. Her son, Oliver, uh, has led a pretty normal life, according to the news agency. She supports the legislation. She's testified before lawmakers in favor of that bill. We were told of all the, the uh, different therapies Oliver would need and all the the additional work that would be involved, she said. But we were uh, never told how amazing our lives would be with Oliver in it. Nobody told me my face would hurt from smiling at him. End quote. Well, CBS News touted the fact that few countries have come as close to eradicating Down syndrome births as Iceland and reported that almost all women in that country who receive a positive test for the disease abort their child. Well, after the CBS News report from mid Uh, August lawmakers accelerated the bill in Ohio, according to one state lawmaker, Frank LaRose, uh, one of the bill's sponsors, saying one of the sweetest, kindest people I know have uh, or some of the uh, sweetest, kindest people I know have Down syndrome. He's a a Republican. It's just very unsettling for some of us that people in our society are going to make a decision that his life is worth uh, something and this life is not worth anything based on this genetic Uh, Abnormality. Aborting babies because a child has Down syndrome is a modern day form of eugenics. Dennis Sullivan, who's a physician and bioethicist at Cedarville University, says uh, as of uh, 2015, France had a 77 percent termination rate. Denmark, 98 percent termination rate. Of unborn Down syndrome babies, and by the way, those diagnoses are not always accurate. In the United Kingdom, 90% of pregnant women with a positive Down syndrome test receive an abortion, according to the British Broadcasting Corporation. Others in the medical profession don't agree and fear that if the law is passed, it won't stop abortions, but will prevent doctors and patients from sharing information with one another. Well, these uh, these reason bans, as they put it, represent gross interference in patient-physician relationship, creating a system in which patients and physicians are forced to withhold information or outright lie in order to ensure access to care. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. You're told this is what, uh, what's, uh, what we suspect. You carry the child The term. I'm not sure what he's referring to there. But nonetheless, that's a quote from Mark De Francesco, the 2016 president of the American Congress of Obstet- uh, Obstetrics and Gynecologists. Indiana and North, uh, North Dakota have similar laws, uh, uh, to the bill under consideration in Ohio. Indiana's law, however, has been blocked by a federal judge who ruled the court cannot prevent a woman from getting an abortion based on particular reasons. You can translate that, any reason that, uh, that she may choose under any circumstance, and of course we know that the word health, for example, is so broadly defined that that essentially means a whim would, uh, would satisfy for sufficient grounds in the United States for a woman to choose an abortion. We'll continue to follow the story in Ohio as well as uh, the case as it uh, stands in the courts. Well, taking a look at uh, the remainder of the week and which guests we're working on, on Tuesday we're talking with uh, Carmen Leberge. She's the author of Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. Have you ever engaged in a conversation and you think, now how can I mention what's most important to me in the course of this conversation that doesn't seem forced or awkward. We're going to talk about how to do that with Carmen LaBerge. Also on Wednesday, we'll talk with Karen Wright Marsh. The uh, book is vintage saints and sinners. Scriptures say believers are all saints, but there are those who are formally acknowledged as such. And then of course, sinners of which we all are 25 Christians who transformed my faith. Um, Karen Wright Marsh, author of the book. On Thursday, Jonathan McKee will be my guest. The Teens Guide to Social Media and Mobile Devices, 21 Tips to Wise Posting in an Insecure World. And boy, don't we need some counsel, particularly young people. But my guess is not just young people and how to conduct ourselves in a way that we don't uh, not only dishonor ourselves, say things we regret, um, but we also uh, undermine the reputation of Christ by virtue of our own reputation um, being called into question. So we'll talk with Jonathan McKee about that. And while the book is titled A Teens Guide to Social Media, I think some of us who are well past our teens might also benefit uh, from the book. So we're looking forward to that on Thursday. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to uh, taking a look at some of the lighter news that occurs over the course of a week or weeks to draw our attention to, um, well, uh, perhaps away from some of the more serious matters for just a moment. It's important that we know what's going on in the world. That we respond correctly, that we are prepared to speak about things uh, that might be controversial, but uh, uh, that that need to be um, that night light rather needs to be brought to bear regarding. So we'll uh, we'll do that. all day, all week long, from Monday through Thursday. But on Friday, we try to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news as well. But if there is breaking news, and of course, as the Republicans are still trying on what would be under the current rules their last-ditch effort to pass something that wouldn't just wouldn't exactly repeal and replace Obamacare, but would make adjustments that uh, many argue are better than what we have now. Um, that's likely to come down to Friday, maybe even Saturday, as we know the clock is ticking, and they have. Uh, only until the 30th under the current rules to make uh, an effort to uh, to change our health care system. So we'll probably weigh in on um, weigh in on that on Friday, should there be some uh, changes being made. Also want to remind ourselves that in Houston and in Florida, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, the Caribbean Islands, they are suffering uh, tremendous loss following uh, tragic natural events that devastated their uh, communities, in some cases, whole Uh, territories in the case of Puerto Rico. As we know, power there has not been restored and it may take months for that to happen. They're running short of food, they're running short of supplies, and they are desperate. As we know, the, uh, the territory is, uh, in significant financial debt. Uh, That does not help. So they're not prepared. The leadership there is not prepared to help meet the needs of the people. So it is a desperate situation there, as is the case in other places as well. So remember them in prayer and give generously to organizations you trust who are doing work on the ground in these various areas suffering from natural disaster. Well, I want to thank uh, James Blind for both engineering and producing today's program. As Clark Hilton is still out on vacation, thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And I hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow when Carmen Laberge will be my guest. Speak the truth: How to bring God back into every day, every conversation. Hey, hope you have a great night. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.